It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're going to talk about the Lakers comeback over the Dallas Mavericks. We're going to talk a bit about the Celtics and 76ers game that happened on Saturday. And then we're going to talk about some 2023 NBA draft prospects that you need to catch now because their teams are not going to go deep in March. Probably only going to get one or two conference tournament games from each of these players. So if you want to see them, you got to go live right now. You got to see them within the next week. Spins, I'm feeling... I'm feeling alive after this basketball weekend that we just had great, great college basketball Saturday, the crazy Iowa comeback, the crazy Florida state comeback against Miami. We just had this great Lakers comeback. We had the Clippers Kings 176, 175 game on Friday. We had this Sixers Celtics game. That was awesome. Yeah. I'm just feeling, I'm feeling it right now. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like March is here. I'm feeling like we are just like ready to have this incredible three months of basketball here coming up with the NBA playoffs, with March Madness, with conference tournaments, all of it. Yeah, and Arizona State, full court heave at the buzzer for a win. Hunter Dickinson with a shot to send Michigan to overtime against Wisconsin. That probably elongated their NCAA tournament hopes. Adam Bona with a massive block down the stretch to save the UCLA's win on the road at Colorado. Like, an unbelievable weekend of hoops from noon to midnight on Saturday, from noon to wherever we're recording right now on Sunday. Just tremendous, <laughs> tremendous basketball. Like I feel invigorated and alive and, and super excited for what's to come, both with March Madness and the NBA playoffs, because I think that there's a lot more parity in both levels this year, which allow it to be pretty open in some different ways that I'm really excited for. It's absolutely terrific. Let's start, though, with the NBA. Because this Lakers-Mavericks game was one of the more fun, weird basketball games that I can remember. The Mavericks open up this enormous lead. I think the biggest that I saw it get to was 27 points at 48-21. to But even still, I mean, with three minutes left in the second quarter, this was like 56-31. to it was, it was a big deficit for the Lakers. And then two guys just really took over, it felt like. First and foremost, Anthony Davis, I thought was incredible in this game. Across the board, obviously his shot making was really big. His rebounding was really big. He goes for 30, 15, four assists, three blocks. But I thought his defense was enormous in this game. He's a guy that has like this reputation for not playing hard and not looking all that engaged, but... He was locked in in this game, I thought. He was switching out onto the perimeter at a really high level. His rim protection, I thought, was awesome. His weak side rotations across the paint. He was just always available, always there. He made life really, really hard for Dallas. The second guy is Jared Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. I have, like, a notated section of, (laughs) like, from the 345 mark 
in the second quarter, like 345 left in the second quarter, all the way through the third quarter of all the things that Jared Vanderbilt did in this game. It was unbelievable. He completely changed the tide, I thought, with his energy, his activity level, his defensive ability on the ball, on Luka Doncic, taking on that tough assignment. It was it was something, man. I, I absolutely loved this basketball game. And I, we'll talk about it from the Lakers' perspective first. I also think this was a very telling, concerning game for Dallas, if you are a Dallas Mavericks fan. But let's start with the Lakers. Let's start positively. What did you take note of in this game? Yeah, so Anthony Davis on offense was huge. And the big buckets that he had is spin move, kind of turnaround jumpers from the the left side of the floor, particularly around the left elbow. Just him getting to his spot, something that Dallas was not able to get away from. They tried to do some double teams, and you know the Lakers would swing the ball around a little bit more, find the open guy, like some big shots in the second half from – couple teammates but really this was Anthony Davis on the offensive end willing them to victory and just getting enough points in the half court setting to offset what was not a very good LeBron James game and it seems like he tweaked his ankle or his foot a little bit so maybe there's something to monitor moving forward for just how LeBron is doing but Anthony Davis was absolutely incredible getting to the basket finishing through contact he had one major putback that he was able to just grab this offensive rebound improbably he's in traffic amongst three or four Mavericks go right up and slam at home like he meant business and he was playing this like it was a playoff game that was really what stood out to me about Anthony Davis but Vanderbilt kind of won this game for them his energy the way that he flipped the script late in that second quarter and then carried it all the way through the third quarter is what gave the Lakers life and brought them back into this I, I think the front court defensive tandem of AD and Jared Vanderbilt should strike fear into teams in the Western conference. It, it can, it can do a lot of damage just with the energy, the activity, the amount of ground coverage that these guys have Vanderbilt plays his role to a T, but you could see how he was frustrating everybody on the Mavericks front court guys. He was getting into Luka Doncic, his energy and passing lanes was huge. Everything he did changed the complexion of this game for Los Angeles. So I just want to read you a like set of notes that I took that Jared Vanderbilt did starting at the sure. 345 mark of the second quarter, 345 left in the second quarter, all the way through basically till the third quarter. So huge offensive rebound with 345 left Vanderbilt grabs it, gets fouled, makes two foul shots. Then he gets a stop in isolation on Luca, then gets a steal and deflection that leads to a Malik Beasley run out. Then he gets an offensive rebound off of a Malik Beasley missed free throw uh, from that and one on the Beasley run out. Gets a corner catch and shoot three after that. Gets another Luka stop uh, on like a floater in the lane, basically. Forces an offensive foul on Luka Doncic uh, late in the second, late in the second quarter. And basically was like the driving force to get it from 25 points that they were down at the start of this with 345 left to 14 points at halftime. It was 61 to 47. Then he gets a huge steal early in the second half, I think with like 10 and a half minutes left. Massive offensive rebound just when the Mavericks are starting to get away again. They get up 17. Vanderbilt gets the extra possession. It leads to another LeBron offensive rebound, leads to a lob for Anthony Davis. Then Vanderbilt gets a huge defensive rebound, pushes the pace, throws down a dunk in semi-transition. Then another defensive rebound pushes grab and go 
finish at the rim on like a really impressive uh, change of pace uh, right in the lane where he was able to kind of navigate some traffic, something that he has struggled with throughout his career. Uh, Then he jumps a passing lane to get a transition dunk next. Then he gets a rebound off of a Luka block from uh, Anthony Davis is the one where Anthony Davis kind of rotated over and swatted Luka. Um, They get a transition bucket that way. Another offensive rebound with six minutes left in the third quarter. Uh, Then another defensive play where he got his hand into a dribble handoff between Tim Hardaway Jr. and Luka. He gets the steal, throws it over his head for a Troy Brown run out. Then gets another offensive rebound and put back dunk at the five minute mark. Then gets another offensive rebound at the four minute, 30 second mark. That's like 12 straight minutes of Jared Vanderbilt. I believe at that point, it was like a four or five point game. Basically his energy, his activity level, his defense, his willingness to pick up Luca 45 feet from the rim made this like a 20 point swing for the Lakers. He was kind of the swing piece in this game. Anthony Davis is the best player on the court in this game, I thought. But Vanderbilt's energy and activity level completely swung this game for the Lakers. It was unbelievable, I thought. Well, and he did it all the way down the stretch, too. It wasn't just in that second and third quarter when they needed it. He was really strong and active in the fourth quarter. You could see him forcing yeah. that late-game turnover when the Mavericks are down three, the sideline inbound, trying to get one last look. Close the game. He closed, closed the game that Closed way. the game out by hounding Luka Doncic, not allowing him – to, to get a clean inbound. It kind of gets semi-deflected into the backcourt. Luca doesn't know if he can grab it, so he tries to save it. And the Lakers end up getting possession, adding to their free throw total, and that clinches it. Like, everything that he did throughout was so, so impactful. And this is, to me, he's the most impactful ad that they made around the trade deadline. That, yes, D'Angelo Russell and what he's able to bring from a floor spacing perspective fits so much better next to LeBron and AD. But Vanderbilt changes the complexion of how they guard, how they play with energy, and allows them to get out in transition. That's the biggest thing that this Lakers team needs. They're going to struggle in the half court. Darvin Ham is not this X's and O's maestro that is running all of these pristine sets and putting guys in positions to succeed. Like He has his one bread and butter that he goes to, which is the Austin Reeves back screen for Anthony Davis on a lob. Yeah. And they got a three out of that today, which was, was really crucial and timely. But beyond that, there's not a ton of creativity going into this. They need transition in order to keep up with teams a little bit on the offensive end of the floor. Vanderbilt and Davis together fuel that so much. I love that defensive tandem. So worth noting, D'Angelo Russell misses this game with a sprained ankle. A lot of Dennis Schroeder in this game, uh, both good and bad. He had some really positive moments late in the game. He had like a couple of little floaters, flip shots. Also, eight assists versus only one turnover. I thought that was a really, really critical number for Dennis Schroeder. I thought he took care of the ball, took some wild, you know, maybe maybe those are the turnovers that sometimes happen with Dennis Schroeder, the wild shots that don't really have a chance. But he was under control. He was very polished. I thought he played a really, really solid, well-rounded game. Jared Vanderbilt, just closed the loop there, ended up with 15 points, 17 rebounds, including eight offensive rebounds and four steals, including the one at the end that closed the game. I mean, my goodness, just a an absolutely ridiculous Jared Vanderbilt game. The 
the Anthony Davis of it all, though, is interesting here because it feels like for whatever reason, people have been so quick to forget how good Anthony Davis has been this year. I think it's because he didn't start the season incredibly well. But then he had that crazy stretch where he was like one of the three best players in the league over the course of like a 20 game sample from basically like game 10 to game 30 or something like that. And then he gets hurt and now he's back and it feels like he is really starting to come into his own here uh, over these last couple of games, you know, against the Warriors now against, uh, you know, this incredible Dallas game. I feel great about where Anthony Davis is at. How how are you feeling about the way that this thing is going to go for AD moving forward? Yeah, it, it feels great. And another reason it feels great, you look at some of the different lineups that the Lakers can trot out there now. They can provide you know the different floor spacings that AD needs to be able to operate. Like in a late game when he was trying to close things around the elbow, they had good floor spacing around him with Beasley out there with Austin Reeves on the floor. Like there's, there's enough shooting that they're able to cobble it together defensively. There were moments when I just looked at the court and I said, Holy crap, the Lakers are huge. They had Mo Bamba. Yes. They had Rui Hachimura out there. Like they can play really, really big next to Davis. They can play small and put him at the five to create a marginal advantage and space the floor properly. Like, this well, is just, what... just straight up, like an Austin Reeves, LeBron James, Jared Vanderbilt, Anthony Davis, two through five lineup is just huge. Yeah. All four of those guys are plus defenders, especially when they're engaged. Like LeBron is like really, really locked in. He had some moments where you could tell like whatever is going on with his foot, like bothered him tonight a little bit. And it was, you know, hit or miss occasionally for him on that end. But you'd expect that assuming they can reach the play in the playoffs, that he'll be pretty engaged. They were just long. They were active. They were aggressive. This is something the Lakers have not had this season. They've played very small throughout the course of the season. You know, one thing that I have stated throughout, you know, in all of the trade coverage I did and all of the podcasting I did, they played over half of their minutes this season prior to the trade deadline with two guys that were at least six foot three or shorter on the court, Patrick Beverly, Russell Westbrook. Um, you know, obviously Dennis Schroeder was within the mix there as well. Kendrick Nunn was within the mix there as well. There, there were just a lot of smaller guys on the court and guys that aren't very good defensively. Schroeder has done an okay job defensively at the point of attack this year, but he hasn't been, you know, he's just not big in the way that this team needs around him. And if you have another small next to him, it's just a little bit difficult. With this big group that they can play and they can close with, it's enormous. Like they, they are really, really tough to beat. Now, you brought up Rui, you brought up Bamba. I mean, I don't know how playable those guys are. No. Like this, this no. bleed blew out in a big way, you know, starting near the end of the first quarter when Darvin Ham trotted out a. It was Austin Reeves, Lonnie Walker, Troy Brown, Rui Achimura, Mo Bamba lineup. And it was only for like five possessions or so. And then they brought in LeBron for, I want to say it might have been Lonnie off the top of my head. But it's just not, you can't play that many players that are somewhat deficient in terms of feel at once. Like, you know, for as athletic and long as Bamba and Rui are, they are just not high field guys. And Lonnie Walker additionally is a great scorer for someone who can come in for limited minutes. You see if he's hot or not. If he's not, 
you know, put him back on the bench. It's hard to play those guys and get efficient offense together at once. Yeah. You know, Austin Reeves is really, really sharp. Troy Brown just can't really shoot consistently, so you don't really have to guard him out there. It, it's difficult, I think. And, and I have no idea why Darvin Ham is just not like staggering Anthony Davis and LeBron in a more substantial way than he is right now. But it's a fascinating, fascinating bench unit where you can get Rui on the court with you know, LeBron and AD, you can get Mo Bamba on the court with LeBron and maybe try and get a couple of lobs, a couple of pick and pops. You can't run full bench units. And I'm a little bit worried about whether or not Rui, Bamba, Troy Brown are going to be really playable in the playoffs, but you're going to get D'Angelo Russell back as well. So you're going to get that extra 25 to 32 minutes a night where you're not going to have to cover for it. So I think this Lakers team is in a really, really good position as long mm-hmm. as Darvin Ham plays the guys that he should be playing. And that's been a question throughout the year. But I thought he did really well throughout the second half of this game to make the adjustment to rolling with the guys that were working and rolling with the lineups that were working. No doubt about it. Uh, I struggle knowing what to do with that bench unit myself. So, uh, you know, not to deflect blame in any type of way, like Darvin Ham's got some stuff to figure out and I'd like to see the Lakers get fully healthy before uh, he can tinker with the lineups in an effective way that leads to what he'll be doing in the postseason. But uh, like Bamba, Rui, Troy, they, they do worry me a lot because they're kind of redundant next to a lot of the star players that they have and not good enough yep. to be able to sustain the minutes when they're not on the floor. The other thing I want to note about this game from a Lakers perspective, and I do think this could end up being like a season shifting win for them, Mm -hmm. just in terms of like, we know what our identity is now. It's crash the glass. It's play super active and aggressive defensively, play long defensively. I hope that they take the right lessons from this game. And I think there's a real chance that they could. I also think the Lakers are a team that is, from a roster perspective, if Darvin Ham puts the right players on the court, almost tailor-made to cause this Dallas team problems. And this is where we can transition into the Dallas piece of it. If I was a Dallas fan, I would think this is a nightmare game, basically. I, I would be very, very frustrated and disappointed because this is all of my biggest fears about this roster coming to life. The Lakers bludgeoned them on the glass. The Mavericks this season are something like, you know, middle of the pack in defensive rebounding rate and dead last in offensive rebounding rate. And it's going to be really, really hard for them, I think, in the playoffs, particularly when they run up against teams that are going to try and crash the glass against them to hold up when you're dealing with guys like Dwight Powell and Christian Wood in the front court as your rebounders. I thought that the Lakers just absolutely aggressively attacked the offensive glass in a way that led to extra possessions. The other piece of this for the Mavs that really worries me is we can talk about how LeBron had a bit of a deficient game by his standards this season. LeBron still had 26 and eight and was huge for them largely because Dallas just doesn't have anybody that can slow him down. Dallas tried to run out Reggie Bullock on him. It didn't work. Tried to run out Josh Green on him. He bullied Josh Green to the rim. 
you know, they tried a few different things like Tim Hardaway Jr. Occasionally was out there on him. Didn't really work. You know, I saw the late in the game, if I remember correctly, just, you know, Frankie smokes ended up on him just in a, you know, scramble transition situation. And he just bullied him to the basket. Right. And this is before we get to the Anthony Davis of it all having 30 and 15 and just completely dominating their front court in such a substantial way. This was the worry when you move Dorian Finney-Smith for Kyrie Irving. It's an upgrade, and it's certainly a long-term upgrade because guys like Dorian Finney-Smith are easier to find than guys like Kyrie Irving. You just have to hope that you know the time bomb that can be at times Kyrie Irving doesn't go off before – you can replace story and Finney Smith and you have to resign Kyrie in the off season. Yep, yep. We'll see how that goes, you know, based off of all reports, there seems to be some willingness to work together there. Who knows? I, I would be very, very worried about the short term ills that currently befall this Dallas team and I would be much more worried about it based off of this game so the the lack of wing defense was obvious as soon as they traded Finney Smith away and didn't replace him with anybody in in it's it's big wings like Josh Green is fine against smaller guys and Reggie Bullock is fine against like you know six foot six and under guys it's the bigger guys that are strong, that are going to give them problems. Well, and it's funny because I thought Josh Green was most effective when he was guarding Austin Reeves. And yeah, they got into it and got chippy for a, a moment in time. But that's the type of guy that Josh Green can create chaos against. The The lack of a bigger wing for them defensively causes a lot of challenges. But what I want to focus on isn't just the lack of personnel that they have. It's the the rotations that they can't make when they have two guys like Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving chilling off ball. And that one transition cross match that you referenced earlier where LeBron had Frankie Nilakina on him and just bullied him all the way to the basket. What I was watching the entire time in that possession, Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic standing as the two lowest guys on the opposite side of the floor, just kind of watching Frankie get bulldozed to the rim and not doing anything about it. No help, no coverage to try to trap the box or, or at least send sort of a scramble, no stunt down. They just stood there, negotiated about who was going to guard who in their spot and stood there and watched LeBron bully him. Like there's there's going to be a lot of help coverages that the Mavericks can't deploy in sending extra help to guard those bigger wings because Doncic and Kyrie aren't always the most tuned in as off-ball defenders. And look, I think that they can do it for stretches in the postseason. But this was, what, two minutes left in the game when LeBron bullied Nilakina to the basket somewhere around that point in time. If, if you're not dialed in in this type of game after the Lakers have mounted that comeback over the course of the last two quarters, then it's going to be really hard to just flip that switch and turn it on in April and May. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, if I remember correctly on that shot, and I'm actually literally pulling it up while we talk, the the Anthony Davis turnaround post up, like, you know, drop step to the baseline, fade away. Yeah. Yeah, so I just pulled that up. The Mavericks answer to Anthony Davis in that late game situation defensively was Luca. Like yeah. it was not a situation where that was a switch scenario and Luca got stuck on him. They were like, we are going to guard Anthony Davis with Luca Doncic here because we think Luca gives us the best chance to succeed. And 
I do think Luca, when he's engaged and when he is not, you know, taking a bit of a breather because he's running everything on offense for Dallas, I think he can be like a pretty okay defender a lot of the time. But he's not the guy that you want on Anthony Davis. And if that's your best option, just given that Luca is six foot eight, doesn't have crazy long arms and Anthony Davis is 6'10", 6'11", and has a seven foot five wingspan. He's always going to get a clean look in that scenario. There's just not really a, there's not a way to slow that down. Well, I, I think part of the, the rationale, if I'm kid is I would put Luca on Anthony Davis, knowing that I'm going to have to double team it anyway, which prevents Luca from being involved in the scramble. And it, it just saves him a little bit more uh, energy as he's not the one that's going to be rotating out of that double team. He sticks with AD. They trap, try to get the ball out of his hands. Like I, I understand some of the concept of it there, but the, the engagement part has to change. And part of the reason you bring in a guy like Kyrie Irving to this organization is so that Luca isn't doing as much heavy lifting on offense that he has to rest on D. And this presence of Irving in the lineup should eradicate those excuses. And I think the Mavericks defensively still need to get to the point where Luca is buying into playing that role and being much more engaged on the defensive end of the floor. It's really the only shot they've got at winning a postseason series or two this year. Yeah. And you know, you can maybe if you're a Dallas fan, make the case that Kyrie Irving did not have his best game. You know, he goes for 21, 11 and five. If you want to look at the box score, but he was eight of 22 from the field. He was two of 10 from the three point line. And a lot of those were fairly open looks like didn't shoot it well in this game. But I mean, you take away those Kyrie three point attempts. I mean, this team shot like 18 of 39 from three, like they almost made 50% of their three point looks outside of Kyrie. And then, you know, Luca made 50% of his threes. You look around, Tim Hardaway Jr. went four of eight. Josh Green went three of five. Christian Wood went two of five. Reggie Bullock went two of six. You know, Justin Holiday went two of five, right? He made those two big early threes. So it also just felt like the Lakers, the Lakers did not care if Justin Holiday was open from three in this game. They just didn't. They didn't care, you know, in the nine minutes that Markeith Morris was out there. They didn't care if he was open. Uh, Josh Green, they eventually started to care if he was open, which was interesting, that that is a, that is a potential thing to look for. I still think that the Mavs are not at a hundred percent. They're going to get Maxi Kleba back and Maxi's defense is going to be huge for them. He is arguably the most important guy here moving forward for Dallas alongside Josh Green, if only because I think those are the two guys that can be real two-way players for this roster. I don't know if I trust Justin Holiday just given how limited he is on offense outside of potentially making spot threes to be like a real difference maker for this team. And again, he's like six, five, six, six, as opposed to Dorian Finney Smith, who's six, eight and can take on like really tough defensive matchups. So yeah, I I don't know. And I mean, obviously they rolled with a lot of Dwight Powell late in this game Mm -hmm. uh, over Christian Wood. I, I just, Again, I think that comes down to defense and rebounding. I think they probably feel better about Dwight Powell rebounding and playing tough defense. I don't know if that's right. I mean, Christian Wood had nine rebounds in this game and was – I didn't think he was terrible. I mean, you look at the box score, you know, he had 17 points – or no, he had 14 points and nine rebounds. I think they won his minutes out there, but I I don't know. I mean, it's – 
it's going to, it's going to get interesting. And maybe you can make a case that having Maxi allows them to play Christian Wood more, like insulate him with more size and more defensive ability around him. But it's, it just looks pretty clear that like that Dallas coaching staff doesn't seem to trust Christian Wood uh, in the way that the box score numbers indicate. Uh, that look, this was the perfect storm in a lot of ways. The Lakers, as you mentioned at the top of this, are tailor made to hit on a lot of the the challenges that the Mavericks have as a roster, particularly on the glass. Yes. They they pressed them with energy, completely changed the the momentum of that game. Dallas didn't have the personnel to be able to respond to it. And then Kyrie kind of went cold in the fourth quarter and wasn't able to knock down a lot of shots. Kind of the perfect storm of a lot of different things. I think that there are some orange flags to be aware of. We knew that the defensive personnel just wasn't going to be there. Now we get to see in action what it looks like against other really good teams that also have bigger wings that the Mavs just can't match up to. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break. Do you have anything else before we move on from this Lakers-Mavs game? Look, uh, the Lakers are good. This is a good Mm -hmm. team now that they have surrounded LeBron and AD with shooting, with defensive activity, with more size. These moves are going as well as what I thought they would, as well as what you thought they would when we talked about some of this stuff. I see every reason to be excited about this uh, Lakers Mavericks or this Lakers team moving forward. And the Mavericks are still going to be a really good team. It's just that you wonder how they're going to match up. I think with opposing teams in the playoffs, given some of their inherent limitations on the roster defensively and in the front court, let's now take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back in a second here. Okay, I think I did a lot of talking on the last thing. So I will go to our resident Celtics fan, Adam Spinella. The Celtics win this game 110 to 107. Crazy finish, obviously, in that last, you know, minute and a half, but ends with a Jason Tatum three pointer with one and a half seconds left. Joel Embiid takes an inbounds pass, throws up a heaved 65 footer, and it goes in, but it was just after the buzzer. And Joel knew it as soon as he shot it. That it was just after the buzzer. Spins, what was your biggest impression of this game? A lot of different takeaways uh, here, Sam. And as a, a Celtics guy, I, I was really encouraged to see the Boston Celtics be able to win a game or at least stay within striking distance in the earlier parts, particularly in the third quarter while Jason Tatum was not at his best. It took him three and a half, almost four quarters to wake up and really have the best version of himself. Uh, the the shot making at the end, he really responded, was able to get one open three that he pulled, had a couple nice ISO moves, and then obviously the stop on a dime, you know, go ahead dagger in the final couple seconds there. But he wasn't great for most of the evening, inefficient, playing with a lack of energy. And I thought that there were a few players around him in particular that were able to pick that up. And, and it's it's Derek White, it's Malcolm Brogdon, it's Al Horford. Veterans who they have who understand the significance of the moment, the environment, the game that they're playing in. Look, the Celtics are in a, a dogfight for the top of the, the Eastern Conference standings. 
those vets know the importance of winning a game like this on the road in Philly for keeping them number one in the East and potentially getting home court advantage. So for Al Horford to step up and hit huge three pointers in the third quarter to get the Celtics back and and kind of tie the game or end up taking the lead through that stretch. Malcolm Brogdon and Derek white are such a marginal advantage on the second unit because when other guards sit, they punish the second unit for everyone else. They are so big and so physical. They're in tune defensively. They get into the basketball. They rebound well. And this Celtics team, particularly in the third and fourth quarters, was really, really connected on the defensive end of the floor. They were stunting at Joel Embiid. Every time he caught the ball, they made him think about whether they were doubling, who they were doubling with, and the the Sixers' offense kind of stalled out. One of the reasons that Boston was able to do this is because they put Rob Williams on P.J. Tucker to be that weak side rim protector who could clean up any type of mess if Embiid ever got free or if somebody else cut or slipped around him. They did not care if P.J. Tucker was going to jack corner threes the entire night. Put Rob Williams on him throughout Grant, throughout sometimes Marcus Smart on switches, throughout Al Horford, they'd switch everything else and just say, Joel, you're going to have to guess possession after possession where our help comes from. And what an unbelievable group of veterans that can just play like this and make it happen for the Celtics. They were so good defensively in the final 14, 15 minutes of that game. Their offense started to click and Tatum made shots, but I was so impressed by Boston's defense down the stretch. I'm so glad you talked about Boston because I feel like a lot of my takeaways are more 76ers based in this. And Boston obviously won the game. And they won in large part because... Al Horford made four or five just enormous second half threes that also were wide open. Let's be clear about that. The pick and pop game, the driving kick game where Embiid has to help off of Al Horford. I thought that it was really, really well managed by Boston, well adjusted by Joe Missoula and that coaching staff to get Al Horford those looks, frankly, by the players on the court as well. I think they recognized what was happening in terms of Joel Embiid staying deep in the paint and allowing Al Horford those potential opportunities. Yeah, so there's there's one thing I always worry about with the Sixers when they have Embiid on the floor, and it's their transition defense because a lot of times in transition, Embiid just wants to run to the rim and take whoever goes to him. The Celtics are really smart about running to kind of five-out spots and really forcing Embiid to either cross-match onto somebody else or knowing that somebody's going to be open from th- for three. And that's where Horford really got his stuff started, was in transition. It was the defense leading to offense. He had one time where he grabbed a rebound and tried to push, and no one matched up to him. He just dribbled right to the top of the key and drilled another three. I think it was his third in that stretch of four three-pointers in the third quarter. Like it, Transition defense for Philly is always going to be a little bit of a worry, But Boston cross-matching on the other end made it so much more of a nightmare for the Sixers to try to figure out. Yeah, I think you're 100% right about that. The thing I want to bring up first for the 76ers is you brought up all of these different ways that Boston defended Joel Embiid. And I don't think you're wrong. Like I think you're absolutely correct just in terms of the different things they threw at the wall to see if it would work. I guess that's my point. Like, Did any of it work? (laughs) <laughs> I don't really think any of it worked. Yeah. It was, I, I didn't think it was impactful. Like Joel still goes for 41 points, 12 rebounds, five assists. I thought he managed the doubles really well. There was mm-hmm. a stretch in, I believe it was either the first or second quarter 
Uh, it was the first quarter now looking at it. So right around the five minute mark, Embiid posts on the left side of the court against Horford. They double with Jason Tatum and Harris just like 45 cuts right to the rim and Embiid hits him the first time Embiid hits him wide open dunk. The second time Embiid hits him, delivers the pass. Great Grant Williams weak side transition to get a block or weak side rotation to get a block. But I felt like he managed those double teams well. I feel like the Al Horford thing where it used to be, oh, Al Horford's one of the great defenders who deals with Joel Embiid really, really well. Yeah. I thought Al Horford got manhandled. Yeah, he, he got cooked. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say Al Horford is a bad defender. It's just to say that the run that Joel Embiid is on right now is something that's unbelievable. And I don't really know that there's anybody that can defend him. And I don't think that the Al Horford can defend him thing is a thing anymore. Uh, I I think Joel, if you play him one-on-one with Al Horford's going to cook him. If you play him one-on-two with a man coming and digging into his handle, I think Embiid's going to cook him. And I think that's where, if I'm a 76ers fan, I feel really good about this. Joel Embiid, I think, is the best player on the court in that series. All due respect to Jason Tatum. The Sixers have actually done like a pretty good job on Jason Tatum the last couple of times they played him. I thought they did a pretty good job on him last night. It was a lot of DeAnthony Melton uh, just kind of frustrating him and annoying him on the perimeter. I thought Jalen McDaniels did like a pretty okay job for the limited minutes that he was asked to defend him. And then Tobias Harris had to guard him for a decent amount of time. And I think that the other piece of this is, you know, to close the loop on Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid is going to be the best player in that series because the Celtics don't have any way to stop him. And I think they have enough bodies to throw at Jason Tatum to where they can at least marginally impact him in some way. And by the way, like when I say that they're going to be fine, I think the Celtics still win this series to be clear. But if I was a 76ers fan coming off of that game, I would feel more positive even though they lost that game at home in a way that had to feel like a dagger to the heart, right? Yeah. The other piece of this is Tobias Harris, I think, played really, really well. Did a great job in the defensive minutes that he was asked to play, at times on Jason Tatum, at times on Jalen Brown. A lot of the time, he was just kind of asked to deal with one of the bigs, and I thought he did a pretty good job of that. Across the board, I thought Tobias Harris had a great game. He had like 19 points in the first 25 minutes. Just was super impactful, efficient, smart, managed things well. The problem for the 76ers right now is not the starters. Honestly, if it was the starters against starters, I think I would pick the 76ers to be Boston right now. Ooh. I think that the 76ers bench is entirely ill-equipped in a Boston series, almost like top down. Uh, Tyrese Maxey really has problems against the Celtics right now because of the number of big guards and the number of cross matches that the Celtics can create mismatches off of, off of Tyrese Maxey on. He really has struggled against the Celtics. It feels like the last couple of times they've played and it is in part defensively, it's a problem for him. And look, he didn't play super well offensively yesterday either. He went four of 10, Oh, of two from three and only had eight points, but defensively is where I'm a little bit more concerned about Tyrese. 
George Niang, I love George Niang. I don't know how playable he is in that series. They just worked that mismatch every yeah. single time. Tried to get Jalen Brown on him. Tried to get Jason Tatum on him. I don't know if you can play him uh, in a series against Boston, which is concerning. Paul Reed was a nightmare in the five mm-hmm. minutes he played. And in the next like second half of that rotation, they eventually pulled him off very quickly and put on P.J. Tucker yeah. as like a small ball five. And that's just not something you can do against Boston, I don't think. They're going to bludgeon you if you do that. They're too big with the ability to play Al Horford and Rob Williams together in those minutes. Uh, I don't know if Shake Milton can play in that series. Like, I, I just, the, the guy that I felt okay about was Jalen McDaniels. But Jalen McDaniels is limited, and you don't know if he's going to be able to shoot and space the floor around Joel Embiid, around James Harden. James Harden was also not very good in this game. No. I didn't think struggled defensively, really, really, really struggled defensively. Well, I think and, we'll leave it at that. Uh, but I, I think that's that's where my optimism for the Celtics and the Celtics Sixers series yeah. really comes in, is that they have a lot of different players at the point of attack who can frustrate Harden. They switch everything one through four when they, what they weren't guarding uh, with Robert Williams on Tucker, like they'd switch everything else. And that makes the offense really slow down for the Sixers turns Harden much more into a scorer than a playmaker. And I think he's been so good this year because he's been really well equipped to have balance between passing and scoring. the last thing is how many years in a row have we seen the Celtics and Sixers go at it and Joel Embiid have, 30 to 45 points for the Sixers in a loss. Like this is the formula since Brad Stevens kind of took over and seems to be continued last year with Ime and this year with Missoula, like throw a lot of different things at Embiid, try to make him play one-on-one trade twos for threes with him, just trying to mismatch and go through people inside bank on the fact that you can draw one or two charges with Marcus smart, Derek white, whoever else gets mismatched there and you neutralize everybody else because now the ball sticks in Embiid's hands and he tries to make it about him going one-on-one. Harden neutralized a little bit more. You don't get a ton of spot-up looks for anybody else because, hey, you can kind of leave P.J. Tucker alone in the corner. Like This is the bet that Boston is making. It's why I still would go with them pretty cleanly in a, in a best-of-seven series. And I would too, only because I think that depth is incredibly important for yeah. them. And that bench unit they're just going to bludgeon the Sixers anytime some of those bench units have to come on the court, especially in a seven game series. Like you can't run out, especially in a series that could be the Eastern conference finals where there is some real attrition at that point. Right. Both those teams will be a little bit tired. It's going to be hard to run out Joel Embiid, James Harden, Tobias Harris, 42 minutes a night and try and roll with what you can and PJ Tucker 42 minutes a night. I don't really think you can do it. If I'm being completely honest, I think that they're going to need to figure out an answer for these bench units. Otherwise the Celtics just win that series, but starters on starters. I feel okay about the 76ers in those games. It's just that the bench units, anytime that some of those guys come in, I think the Sixers bench guys are very ill-equipped to deal with the Boston bench guys or starters in any tangible way. Yeah. Uh, You must have more optimism on PJ Tucker's fit on the offensive end than I do. Cause I I think that there are a lot of different ways that the Celtics can uh, exploit that and have it turn into a little bit more of four on five in that side of the floor. 
I think that you're right. It's just that, again, if you're running it through Joel every time and you're using Rob Williams as like the weak side help and you have P.J. Tucker on the opposite side of the court, right? Like if P.J. Tucker in the opposite corner on in the right corner, Joel is on the left block, you're basically pulling Rob Williams a little bit away from the action because Joel is just going to go through or he's going to stop and try and hit that little mid-range shot, or he's going to get to the basket so quickly that Rob's help is almost like not there a lot of the time. So I'm a little bit less worried about that aspect of it, just like structurally. I'm just more worried about any time that the 76ers are going to have to play these bench guys. I I think it's going to be a problem. I hope we see this turn into a best of seven series. I really enjoyed last night's game. It was a fun back and forth. I think the tactical chess pieces of just the way the Celtics play with all of their interchangeable pieces is a fun puzzle to try to watch Joel Embiid try to solve. Uh, I really would love to see this this series come back in May. Yeah, I would too. Like I, I, this is that game last night made me really excited about those two teams playing in a playoff series. Like, The Lakers-Mavs, while it would be interesting just to see Luka against LeBron and Kyrie and AD and all those guys on the court, I almost like don't know that I care to see that series as much. That Celtics-Sixers series would be really, really interesting just from a chess perspective, from a coaching perspective, from mismatches, trying to find different ways to create opportunities for the guys on the court, all of those perspectives. I think that would be just an incredibly interesting series. And I think there's a decent chance we get it. So uh, I'm, I'm really, really excited. I would assume that it would have to be in the conference finals, meaning the Sixers would have to beat the Bucks. But uh, I, I think that that's like a 50, 50 shot. Really, the Bucks are only a game or so behind the Celtics, and there's a lot of time left, so yeah. it could it could end up being a semifinal matchup. But either way, I, I do want to see that those two teams collide. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. Okay, let's get into some 2023 NBA draft stuff. Yeah. We wanted to talk a little bit about the players that fans should watch now, because if they don't watch them now, you're going to miss them. Because these teams that these players play on are not going to make the NCAA tournament. They're probably not making deep conference tournament runs. This is the time to catch them. So let's just kind of jump into guys like Gigi Jackson, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Hendricks, Max Lewis. We're going to talk a little bit about Brandon Pajemski, who seems to be a really fun name that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, Judah Mintz is another one at Syracuse, although that ACC tournament is so wide open that I just like don't even know how to react to it at this point. Uh, you have Imani Bates on here as well. That Eastern yeah. Michigan team is obviously not very good. So, <laughs> who do you who do you want to start with? Do you want to start with Gigi or Bryce? Yeah, I mean, let's start with Gigi just because I think he's been the biggest name of all of these guys at the top of the draft and. Look, we've had so much conversation about Gigi on this podcast. I know you have with me, you have with Schindler on different episodes. Like, There's not too much to say about his game that we haven't already said, particularly with the setting in South Carolina. Like, They're a bad team. They're not going to do a lot of damage in the, in the SEC tournament, you would think. They don't have a ton of ball movement. They've been bludgeoned twice by Tennessee this year. A really good defensive team that pressures them just makes their entire offense continually break down and go away. And what it turns into as a result is Gigi Jackson being an 18-year-old going against grown-ass men 
trying to isolate and, and create his own shot. Anybody that tunes in to see Gigi Jackson play for the first time is, in my opinion, not going to paint the proper picture for what Gigi Jackson's NBA career is going to be because his South Carolina usage and accountability is so low. Uh, low accountability, poor usage, I should say. Gigi has a lot of bad habits right now that are born out of being a teenager and a frustrating situation where he feels like it might be best for him to just go out there and try to be Superman, that that's the only chance that the Gamecocks have of winning games. And it's not an aesthetically pleasing brand of basketball to watch, and it's certainly not what Gigi's role at the NBA is going to be. So if anyone's tuning in to try to get a feel for who he is, you'll see tantalizing flashes and upside. He'll hit some ridiculous self-created jumpers where at his size for his age with his advanced handle, you say, wow, this guy should probably be a top 10 pick. And then he'll have defensive breakdown after defensive breakdown. He won't share the basketball. He'll pout and stand in the corner. He'll ball bag on the perimeter, just stand there with his hands up, hoping that somebody throws it to him. There are a lot of bad habits that need to be broken. I don't know where you're at right now on Gigi. I'm still a lot more attracted to the upside than anything else. But as the season has gone on, the fact that some of these issues haven't been solved and that South Carolina hasn't been able to win a lot of games is starting to rub me the wrong way. Oh, forget that they haven't been solved. They've been exacerbated. Yeah. They've become worse throughout yeah. the season. I would have been willing to give him much more of a pass if his attitude seemed like very positive and seemed more team oriented and less individualistic, which is what his actions on the court and his actions off the court, such as going on an Instagram live and, you know, basically trashing his coaching staff, asking why he wasn't getting late game shots uh, after what game was that? Do you remember what game that was? I don't, not off the top of my head. Yeah, was, you know, maybe a month ago. I, I would feel better if it wasn't for all of those pieces of the puzzle here but it, it just I'll be honest like this season from Gigi I'm not saying that this will be the truth in the future this felt like a very selfish season from him in a lot of ways and frankly I think it was set up to be that way which is why I'm really struggling with him I blame the people around him that chose to go down this route of taking him to South Carolina after the transfer window was basically closed. So they couldn't really go out and build a roster around him that made sense. And, and like, it would have been attractive for a number of transfers to go play with Gigi Jackson. If you had done this in March, if you had said, Hey, I'm reclassifying, I'm decommitting from North Carolina. I'm going to South Carolina. If you announced that in March, Given how many NBA scouts figured to be at South Carolina this year, you would have been a much more attractive situation to go to. Uh, you, yeah. you would have been a much more attractive transfer destination to where you could have gotten pieces around him that fit. Yeah. So that was poorly planned. And if it if you made the decision after that with Gigi, you shouldn't have done it at the end of the day. You, you should not have gone there. It was a mistake for South Carolina to take him, I think, because you're a new coach. You're trying to build some sort of culture for a team that has not won games recently. And I get that he is an incredibly high profile recruit within the state of South Carolina. And on some level, you probably feel like if he's being offered to you, you have to take him. But you know that he is a 17-year-old 
who probably wants the ball as much as he wants the ball, clearly has yep. indicated uh, with his actions and with his comments that he wants the ball more often in a league where it does not go well when 17 year olds want the ball and are wanting uh, as much of an offensive role. And he's 18 now, but he started the season at 17. All of this was so mismanaged, I think. And some of it falls on Gigi Jackson, the kid, but a lot of it I think falls on the context around him, the situation around him that led to this being the option and the scenario. And I think that that is where it becomes difficult to evaluate him because he is still so young and so capable in so many ways. He is still a very interesting shot creator at six foot nine, but just straight up, these numbers are not the numbers of a first round pick. He has a 46.6 true shooting percentage. That is 10 points below like, the SEC average, let alone the average of a first round pick. If you look at his purely SEC numbers, he has a 43.2 true shooting percentage right now. He has a 17.7 turnover rate versus an 8.1 assist rate. He's shooting 29% from three. His defensive rotations, as you mentioned, are just not available. He was a good defender, I thought, at the prep level. Like, I thought he was pretty active. I thought he was – he had some pretty smart anticipatory reads. You've seen none of that this year. So, I I don't know. Do do you go off of the high school tape and just throw the season away as a situation that was born out of convenience almost? Uh I, look, I would imagine that NIL played a role here in some way. I don't know that. I'm just guessing based off of the lay of the land in college basketball right now. You know, it was probably a marriage of convenience and it was not one that was successful. And because of that, we're now in a place where Gigi Jackson is in an incredibly, you know, problematic situation to figure out. Uh, I don't know where he goes on draft night. Like he could yeah. conceivably fall out of the first round. I think I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, it, Look, know. let me be clear. I have him as a first round pick right yeah, now. I'm saying conceivably if, you know, this doesn't go well in the pre-draft process for him, for whatever reason, he could fall out of the first round. That's not the floor is not pick 30 for him right now. Sure. So, Sam, here's a trivia question for you Then I, I came prepared today. Uh, how many freshmen who posted a true shooting percentage below 47 and a half, kind of where, oh, where Gigi God. has been at, have been drafted as one and dones in the first round? In the last, let's see, the number is here, 15 years. The last 15 years, how many have had a worse shoot, true shooting percentage and gone in the first round their freshman year? I would guess zero. The answer is one. It's uh, Zaire Williams at at Stanford, the rough year that he had there. And he ended up going 10th overall. And and for what it's worth, that's another situational deal where Stanford was on the road literally for a month because of COVID protocols in the Bay Area and didn't really have a gym to work out in all the time. And that was a whole messy scenario. So, And And that's my point. How much can we... There's no roadmap for somebody like this who has been this inefficient, has this much upside in talent, was a a highly touted recruit coming into college, 
and you can look at all the situational things around him and try to excuse X, Y, or Z of his performance, or you could just push it right back on him. Like his draft range is going to be so, so, so wide. I have no idea what to make of it, but here's what I do know. They play Mississippi State this week, then they play Georgia, and then it's the SEC tournament. I'm not going to figure out what to do with Gigi during those three games, and I'm certainly not going to enjoy watching the Gamecocks play during those three games because they're just not a very fun brand of basketball to watch. Yeah, no, they're not. And, uh, I mean, look, this Mississippi State game will be a pretty good test, right? Like, Chris Jans has made that team a top-five defense. They have guys like Tolu Smith and DJ Jeffries that are big bodies that they'll throw at him, right? And it's a game worth scouting in a number of ways just to see how he reacts to the pressure that's going to be thrown at him. Deshaun Davis digging into his ball handle, into his handle, right? Like how quickly he can react to the pressure that's coming toward him because it's going to come from Mississippi state. That is the way that that team plays. And, you know, last time that they played South Carolina only scored 51 points. He did have 15 points in that game, but he had, five turnovers and went four or 14 from the field. Yep. So it is a game worth scouting again, but yeah, he is one of the big question marks across this entire deal this year yep. Yep. in the NBA draft. And you could convince me a team takes him at 14. You could convince me that he goes 35 and I, I don't know what the right answer is for Gigi Jackson right now in terms of how teams will actually come down on him after the pre-draft process gets through. Here's the question I would ask you. I would imagine this is not on the table just because it feels like it rarely is in circumstances like this. Given that the 2024 NBA draft is one that is seen as very weak at this point, uh, it is not one that people are excited about across the league. Would you consider staying in college, maybe transferring, maybe doing something else if you're Gigi Jackson? The only path that I would consider as a means of not necessarily admitting defeat that you're not a one and done or that you made the wrong decision by going to South Carolina, the best remedy for all involved would be to actually try to go to the G League Ignite. That mm. I, would I would actually love to see him be developed a little bit more in some of the ways that they have put effort into Leonard Miller and City Sissoko this year. I'd love to see Gigi try to share the floor with a guy like Matas uh, Zealous next year who's going to be playing there. I think that that would be a really interesting combination in the front court Ooh. and allow a ton of scouts to be able to see the reclamation project for a guy like Gigi, where if he doesn't feel comfortable with the draft range that he gets, try to go the G League Ignite path next year. I had not thought of that. You've You've presented me with something new <laughs> that – I am considering on the fly now, and I like I like that a go. bit. The question is, can he make more playing yeah. college basketball next season or with the Ignite? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, huh. Okay. I don't mind just, that. That's interesting. Just a thought. It's really just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bryce Sensabaugh now. I ride the Bryce Sensabaugh roller coaster <laughs> all the time. I feel like. There are games where I absolutely love him, and I think that this is a surefire lottery pick. There are games where I watch him, and I feel like this is a 20 to 30 guy, probably like 20 to 25. He's definitely a first-round pick this year. Yes. Like I, I would unequivocally take him in the first round. I would be stunned 
if a team didn't take him in the first round, if he decides to declare, assuming all of the medicals and everything comes back right. clean, there's no reason to assume otherwise right now, but you always have to say that in these circumstances. I really, I think I'm coming back around. I think I'm at the point where I have them like back end of the lottery. Now wow. uh, the shot making upside is just real. I think his issues defensively are more like doesn't know what to do as opposed to effort based a lot of the time. And I think that there is some real upside just in terms of his frame, where if he thins out a little bit more, there's some real ceiling there that could be reached athletically. Where where are you on Bryce Sensabaugh at this point? I am on a very similar roller coaster ride to you because I keep he's the one guy that I'm having a really hard time kind of pegging in comparison to some other guys and where I'd have him on my board right now. Look, six six strong frame. I think he could stand to get a little bit leaner, but true three level scoring potential. He's good at self creating in the mid range area. Very strong through contact when he does get to the basket. He puts somebody on an absolute poster today sam like he can get up he's got some underrated bunnies uh to be able to throw out there too he's also got an unbelievably silky jump shot too many times when we talk about guys who are three level scorers we just label them as a really good scorer and don't talk about how good of a shooter they are sensible is probably one of the handful of best shooters in this draft class really effortless stroke when he is wide open he seems to knock them down with consistency it's a feel thing for him on both ends of the floor that I don't know what to do with. Not a very consistent playmaker for others. Seems to force a lot of times or predetermine whether he's going to take pull-ups or get to the rim. And like you said, defensively, he really struggles with knowing what to do. Earlier today, I was tuning into the Ohio State-Illinois game for a, a period of time, and Jay Wright talked about the offense and defense substitutions that Chris Holtman was doing with yeah. Bryce Sensabaugh and how necessary they were. And I think that there are a lot of people around Sensabaugh or who are NBA draft folks who just say, you know what, we need to see what he can do. He's got to learn trial by fire. I think the fact that he's not getting those reps speaks to just how far behind defensively he really is. Oh, he is. He's he's, he's extremely far, to, far behind defensively. Like teams attack him yes. on defense. It, it's not, and it's not just like, okay, we're going to get him switched on the ball and we're going to try and, you know, attack him on the ball with our best guard. It's they run him through all sorts of off ball actions and he doesn't really know where he needs to be. doesn't really know what the right rotation is. Doesn't know the communication in terms of the switch. That That's where he tends to get yeah. a little bit lost more often than anything. It's going to take time. Like it's he is he is a project on that end of the court. But the upside offensively, I'm glad that you brought up the three level scoring. I mean, Bryce is averaging 16.6 points, five rebounds uh, this season, shooting 48 percent from the field, 44 percent from three, 81 percent from the line. Like people bring up like Jet Howard and him is shooters like comparison wise. I think he's like pretty clearly a better shooter than Jet Howard. If I'm being honest, uh, I think that there's a case that Jet might be able to run a few more off ball actions maybe, but just the way that Bryce gets into his shot, both off the catch 
and off of the pull-up, I think is a little bit more impressive. Uh, the way that he just kind of plays off of two feet, constantly on balance, constantly able to get to that pull-up from any position. His ball pickup is really, really clean. Uh, I think that he is a very real potential on-ball scorer at the NBA level. And those guys are really hard to find. They're really, really hard to find. So I do really like Bryce the more that I watch his game and the more that I am the, – the more that I just look at the good instead of trying to focus on the negative. I think I got caught in a cycle early on this year where with him particularly, probably because I went to Ohio State and I want that team to be successful. Like I love that you know university. I love – like I really like the coaching staff there. I really like all of the, I like everything associated with that team. I know that there are people that will hate me saying that, that I really like the coaching <laughs> staff there right now. They do a really good job. They're really, really good offensively. I really buy into them. And I hope Chris Holtman sticks around if I'm being Great people. honest. Great people. But I think I got caught in a cycle where I was just focusing on, oh my God, he's just getting wrecked defensively again. Oh, here's another game where he's just getting wrecked. And, I think there was a real adjustment for him additionally becoming the top of the scouting report guy early on. You know, Chris Holtman mentioned that in a press conference and got like kind of uh, yelled at by Ohio State media. Uh, the person who like asked him the question said like, you know, he's he's been averaging 16 points all year. How is he just now at the top of scouting reports? I mean, he, I'll tell he is. Like it's how it goes. Like you look at if you look at who was defending him previously versus who started defending him. He went from being the guy who got the second best defender to being the guy who got the best defender every single time and who got real coverages thrown his way. Uh, I think he's adjusted now to where there is a real comfort level being able to get to his spots again, which just says so much, right? Like the the 16 points against Iowa, the 20 against Purdue. uh, Like I know that, you know, that game, that game was not necessarily ideal. I think Ohio State lost by like a billion, but I thought that he did pretty well. The 20 against Penn State I thought was super impressive. Uh, that was a super tight game that Ohio State lost. Yeah. Him getting to those 20 points I thought was super impressive. So I, I'm back in on Sensabaugh to where I, I buy him as you know something in the vicinity of a lottery pick at this point. So let me ask you this question because you brought up Jet Howard and the shooting comparisons and, and maybe you know different forms and ways that they get it off. Five years from now, who is the better defender, Jet Howard or Bryce Sensible? I think Bryce because I think that he has more tools than Jet does, yep. more more developable tools than Jet yep. does. He doesn't have more tools now. But Jet is just very slow twitch in a way that worries me and has like a bit of a higher center of gravity. The thing with Bryce is he has a lower center of gravity. So I can see him actually being a little bit more effective defending down the lineup, not getting bullied toward the basket. Um, Kind of a similar James Harden body type, not in terms of game, but like just in terms of that physical frame. I think that he'll have success up the lineup a little bit more than Jet will have up the lineup. Yeah, I I, uh, I need to do a deeper dive on kind of comparing the two and two and looking at at, at the defense. But I think that if yeah. if I come out in the same conclusion as you, Sensabaugh has to trend a little bit more towards the lottery because 
if it's just awareness and not knowing what to do on defense, you can hope that that stuff gets learned over a couple of years. He's really investable offensively because of everything else he brings to the table. Just, you know, Buckeyes haven't won a ton of games this year. They've lost some close ones. They, they've been a little bit inconsistent. Yeah. And and look, they're just, they're not going to be an NCAA tournament team. So our chances to see sensible in this environment and how he reacts to being that guy at the top of the scouting report, they're few and far between. A couple of good ones this week as well, Maryland and Michigan State. Uh, that Maryland game's at home. The Michigan State game is on the road. Will be a fun pair of games to watch. And obviously, whoever they play in the Big Ten tournament is going to be an interesting one as well. Okay, let's go to Taylor Hendricks. I feel like he's the last guy that I think has like a real chance to go in the lottery if things really broke right for him. What is your impression of Taylor Hendricks at this point? Taylor Hendricks is just this ball of potential that if I were an NBA team, I would be thrilled to get my hands on and be able to work with a freshman who's 6'9", 210 pounds, shooting above 41% from three on pretty good volume. But there's some feel and athletic indicators that go beyond just being this stretch shooting four man. Like he's got a positive assist to turnover ratio. He started to make a few more plays off the bounce as the season has gone on. He's had 29 dunks in 27 games like there there's a lot to work with here where you'd love to to get him as a freshman as a one and done because you can develop him into an nba type of player kind of cut in the same mold of a i don't know a younger jay crowder like this physical four man who can take some different matchups guard some stars and some really good players while providing bigger spacing to the corners bigger wait, wait. Yeah, he, he's he's so, taller he's bigger Ariza starting kit to me more than like, you know, like six foot nine athletic, uh, probably a bit more of a wing than a center. Although he does end up playing quite a bit of center for UCF. Uh, but long-term, I, I think he's more of a wing than a center. Don't you? Yes, totally. And look, UCF has lost eight of their last 10 games. They haven't been very yeah. good recently. Like it's, it's part of the reason why their season is going to be coming to an end here, but Hendricks has still been really good over that period, even though the, the drop-off has happened in terms of wins and losses. Like he's still averaging 16 and six. He's shooting 45% from three over that time period. I just yeah. think that there's a lot that he needs to be taught in terms of how to use his athleticism, how to be a lockdown guy, just rotate around on the defensive end of the floor. Like he can be a really, really impactful defensive player while finishing at the bucket and knocking down threes. He just needs a little bit more time and maturity to get there. But I would, like you said, I would not be shocked if he sneaks into the later part of the lottery or is in that 15 to 20 range. Well, and we kind of talked briefly about Gigi Jackson struggling within SEC play a little bit more often. Taylor Hendricks has played pretty well against good teams this year. He has a 66 true shooting percentage, 42% from three in six games against what Ken Palm qualifies as tier a opponents had 17 points and five rebounds against Memphis had 21 points, eight rebounds, three assists against Cincinnati had 17 points, seven rebounds, four blocks against Houston. Uh, And then in that first game against Houston, four, points, five rebounds, two assists uh, against the Cougars, who are a terrific, terrific team. So has been pretty good in those games uh, that matter most this season. It's a feel thing. 
for the most part. Like it, it is like a feel question for him. How do you feel about his rebounding translating to the next level? Because th- that is ultimately why I think he is almost like, I don't think he's more of a three, but like the rebounding is a real concern for him yeah. in terms of being, being able to play the four consistently even i think yeah he's more of a three four than he is a four five uh i know you know what ucf plays him as or, or needs him at for certain lineups it just doesn't indicate how he's going to be used in the pro game like i do think there's some concern with that but i think as he grows and matures and, and gets a little bit stronger that's something you can add a little bit to your game um yeah but yeah it's it's, it's not going to be a strength of his that's for sure no uh, i i would agree with that uh yeah, where where do you think he ends up? I think he probably goes in the 15 to 22 range. Uh, you know, I think that there's a little bit too much offensive firepower available in the lottery for him to leapfrog a couple guys that just have a really good upside there. But for the right team and in the right situation, like look, Utah is going to be fascinating because of the the different first round picks that they have. Do they go after one high upside swing and one really reliable role player? I don't know. But I think that 15 to 22 range is kind of where I have Hendricks slotted in right now. Yeah, I think I'm probably going to end up pretty clearly in that like 15 to 18 range for him. And I will tell you, like NBA teams really want to get him in and see what the deal is. If he ends up in the lottery, we should not be surprised. He is someone that NBA teams are like really, really interested in. Every time I talk to like someone asking me about a prospect or like, you know, talking about prospects, bouncing people off. He's one of the first names that gets brought up. It feels like just because everyone's trying to like figure out who he is. What is the role? What do you think he does? Well, what do you think he can be long-term? He is like kind of a blank canvas for a lot of people and in a really interesting, interesting way. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him be someone that goes a little bit higher than people think. One guy that it seems like is falling more than where people were early in the season, not you and I, you and I, I think we're much more measured in this Yes, is Max Lewis at Pepperdine. I mean, Max Lewis, let's, let's start with this. He has not played great since, what do you want to say? Since this is like mid January, yeah, something l- like that last 11 games, he's averaging 12.8 points, but he's shooting 36% from the field, 23% from three. And he has a negative assist to turnover ratio. Not great. Not great. And then you throw in the fact that he's a just extremely bad defender yeah. right now, uh, despite all of the tools and the length, it, it's just an awareness thing for him. He hasn't played enough super high level basketball yet plus he plays for you know a pepperdine team coached by lorenzo romar and anybody that's followed lorenzo romar's career i think will tell you not necessarily the most defensively adept coach that you will come across within college basketball Uh, if you look through the last let's say since 2012 so that's going to be 10 years of lorenzo romar uh, has never had a top 70 adjusted defense. And a lot of his defenses have been 190, 260, 217, 194, 224, 168, 168. So below average nationally. And that even goes back to Washington when he had the benefit of uh, Ken Palm 
you know, shout out KenPalm.com as always, uh, adjusting that schedule upward a little bit in terms of strength of schedule. So yeah, it's not, it's a situation where Max has real tools defensively, but he's going to really have to learn playing the G league a long time, figure out what's going on. You know, on the season, Max Lewis is averaging 17 points, six rebounds, three assists, 47% from the field, 35% from three, 79% from the line. Here's a good question. You probably just leave if you're him. Right. You yeah. probably just go and like ride the wave and probably oh, go somewhere in the top 30. Right. Aberdeen pun there. Ride the wave. I did what I, I did. Like yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You probably, yeah, I, I think he might, he's a little bit, he's always been wider than what, like there were people who had him in the lottery early in the season. That was never where NBA teams were just to be a hundred percent clear. They were always interesting 20 to 30 guy maybe he rises up into that post lottery, you know, 15 to 20 range. But every time I've talked to teams, they're like throwing him into player comparisons with like, you know, Jalen Hood, Shafino early in the season before his breakout, you know, Arthur Kaluma is a guy that I've had player comparisons thrown about with him. Um, get guys more in the 20 to 30 range as opposed to the upper tier of, this class. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember this, but about a month ago when we were talking about Lewis, I think it was right around the new year. So almost two months now. Um, yeah. I had said that Lewis is probably going to end up having the lowest first round grade on my board. Yep. That That's right. Of all of the guys that we have, whoever gets as many first round grades, Lewis is going to be the last guy to sneak into that group. That could net him in 23, 24, 25 that could get him into the thirties and be more of a second round pick where you feel yep. a little bit safer about it. Um, he needs time. He needs a lot of development on the defensive end of the floor. He needs to fit more into an ecosystem that isn't built around him having a long leash to take dribble jumpers whenever he pleases. He can be a very good shooter. He can be a very good athlete and he has the tools to become a competent defender, but he's so far away from checking any of those boxes that I have a hard time envisioning him being a helpful role player in the first couple of years of his career. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He, he's a G league, like early in his career yep. player where he's going to have to learn how to shoot like really consistently off of off ball actions, learning what the rotations are that he needs to make defensively, getting stronger, filling out his frame. There, there's a lot that he's going to have to work through, I think to where he becomes a high level NBA rotation player. The ceiling is there though. Like there is some real potential for him to do that. If everything breaks right, because he is six foot seven has like a near seven foot wingspan has real bouncy athleticism, has that shooting ability, uh, that shooting potential that he brings to the table. It's just going to take some time. And one guy that I feel like I have noted throughout the year that I I think is closer in the WCC uh, to Max Lewis than what most people think is Brandon Pajemski. And that's not necessarily because I am high on Pajemski as you'll come to find out in this conversation. I have some very real concerns while acknowledging that he is like an interesting prospect worth tracking. It was always that I think Max Lewis is closer to Pajemski as opposed to like Pajemski being closer to Lewis uh, within these conversations. Where do you fall on Brandon Pajemski? Because 
his last few games have been incredibly impressive on the season. The former Illinois fight Malini recruit who transferred this off season to Santa Clara, he's averaging 20 points, nine rebounds, three assists per game, shooting 49% from the field, 45% from three, 77% from the line over his last, let's say, what is it? It's going to be like nine games or so. Over his last nine games, he's averaging 24 points, 10 rebounds, four assists, shooting 54, 51, 71. Uh, where, where do you fall on Pajemski? Because he is in the midst of this like awesome, awesome run right now. He is, and uh, he's been a really, really effective college scorer in a system that allows him to play to his strengths. He can shoot the ball really well at Santa Clara. He's able to handle in some pick-and-roll stuff. He pushes in transition. But most importantly for him, he mismatch posts. They'll let him pick apart smaller guys in the low post area, clear out sides of the floor for him. And that's where he's got great touch with his left hand. He's a lefty. Great touch when he's able to get his man on his back and just go to that lefty hook. He's a really smart passer when teams have to collapse on him. But I don't know if he's good enough of a scorer, live-bodied enough of an athlete off the dribble to be able to command extra attention and then pick it apart at the next level. I think there are some real athletic concerns. I love the touch that he has both inside the lane and as a shooter. He's a very real shooter. He's just a very square shooter. I don't think that there's as much functionality for movement sets for different actions that open up the playbook for Pajemski as maybe a couple of other guys who would be more shooting specialists. What I see is a guy who offensively is good at a lot of things, but isn't projectably great in one key area where I don't know looking forward, what is it that's going to get him minutes at the NBA level? I would hope that it's spot up shooting, but I'm I think, not I think it probably will be. Spot it will up be, shooting. but it's not but versatile. Is that enough? enough? Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's not versatile enough to impact the game in a ton of different ways. And I don't know if it's enough to make up for some of the athletic and defensive deficiencies. He's six, six. He's got good size, feel touch. There are a lot of positive skill indicators there. But I think the the benefit for him in playing at Santa Clara as opposed to still being in Illinois is that they give him a lot of space to just play the game that's most comfortable for him and tailor make a lot of things to his offense. And I don't know if he's going to get that at the next level. Yeah, the guy he reminds me of most is Justinian Jessup. I think he's a better version of Justinian Jessup. Uh but just in terms of the shooting mechanics, uh, very square shooter, much better off of pull-ups or like off the bounce uh, and in spot-up situations than just like flying off of movement. He's pretty good in those dribble handoff scenarios, which I think is like one place where he can actually make an impact potentially in the NBA. He has a bit of a low release point, a bit of a low load point on the shot. And then also uh doesn't get off the ground at all, really. He no. doesn't really elevate into the shot. I worry that he's going to be a little bit too easy to contest at the next level. Uh, the athletic concerns are, are just very real yeah. with him. I, I don't know who he's going to guard at the next level. And I don't know if the offense translates in the way that people want it to. Uh, because there's he's just not good enough to like have the ball in his hands at the NBA no. level. Like We haven't seen anything to really indicate that yet. And how I know we haven't seen anything to indicate that yet is if you look at his numbers when they play good teams. So against Ken Palm tier a competition, Santa Clara has played six of those games. 
his true shooting percentage drops from 61.2% on the season to 53.5% to a below average number over the course of those six games. His defensive rebounding rate, which is 22.3 in West Coast Conference play, drops down to 15.5 in those games against good teams. Uh, The assist rate drops from 19.3 on the season to 15.4 in those games against good teams. Uh, He still shoots three, like he still makes threes. You know, he shoots, you know, 50%. He's, you know, the thing is that he's only getting like three and a half of those threes off against good teams per game, as opposed to throughout the season where he's getting off almost six of those per game. Uh, There is a real number just in terms of there's like a real, there's a real breaking point in terms of athleticism for him. And I don't know if he meets the athletic like breaking point basically like break even point to where he can be playable at the next level. I'm very interested. Like I, I think he is a really, really interesting prospect. I think he should probably go back to school. If I'm being completely honest, I think that he should like maybe look into a transfer up, see if he could move up again somewhere or stay at Santa Clara and average 30 points a game in WCC, probably win WCC player of the year next year, and then try and, you know, build his luck that way, go to some sort of training facility, try to max Mm -hmm. out your athleticism. Mm -hmm. There are real tools here. Like he is shooting 45% from three. However you do that, it is impressive and it is worth tracking. The fact that he can handle the ball and like can operate in dribble handoffs, can operate in ball screens. Those are real skills. And he's like a very, very interesting player because of that. I just don't really see an NBA guy right now. And like, I don't know if I like, where would you have him on your board? Like, I don't know if I would have him in my top 60 at this point. Yeah. I've been talking about him being like right now, just outside of that top 40 with intrigue of saying like, there are certain things I'd want to see if I were to move him up or take him in that range. And part of it is the, the athleticism holding up. Like you had mentioned the lower release point on his shot. It's part of the reason why I wouldn't want to hitch my wagon to him being that spot up option that I have coming into the game in the NBA level. Like I think he can be neutralized and taken away if he's run off the line a little bit more and teams are flying out to, to him. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really torn on, on kind of what to do with the obvious skill and sweet shooting stroke that he has, but don't know if he's able to, to execute that in systems outside of the one he's playing in at Santa Clara. And by the way, very, very different player than Jalen Williams at Santa Clara last year. Like night and day, night, night and day, different types of tools. I know a lot of people are going to look at the situations and say, well, Jalen Williams did this at Santa Clara and he ended up going in the lottery. So why can't Pajemski be so different athletically and in terms of their upside, their tools, what they have moving forward? Yeah. I mean, Jalen Williams is six foot six with a seven foot two wingspan and just like, can actually hold up at the NBA level in terms of, you know, defense and in terms of length and strength and everything. And I, I haven't quite seen enough yet from Pajemski to make me believe he can do that. Even if you want to extend the sample to games played against tier A and B competition, um, only a 55.5 true shooting percentage, defensive rebounding rate goes down, assist rate goes down. Uh, you know, still shooting, you know, 45% from three, but like you can see a clear line in terms of 
when he plays good teams, you know, the numbers are here. When he plays bad teams, the numbers are here. You know, what does this look like if he was playing good teams consistently as opposed to not playing good teams consistently? Uh, The good game that he did have against a tier A opponent was on the road against the BYU team that I just frankly don't think is very good. Uh, 26 points, 12 rebounds, but, you know, played Gonzaga 14 points, 6 of 12 from the field. Uh, but was like a bit ineffectual throughout that game. Seven points against St. Mary's, 17 points on 14 shots against Gonzaga in the first game, you know, 19 points on 13 shots with nine rebounds against St. Mary's in that first game. That's honestly probably the most impressive game he's played this season, in my opinion. And then against Utah State, who's a pretty good team, top 40 team in Ken Palm, uh, three of 11 from the field, 12 points, you know, just was not as impactful as what you would hope to see uh, in a game like that had a few turnovers. So it's just a bit less impactful and you have to try and figure out where, where that all lies. I I think that's where the WCC tournament will be huge for him. See if he can kind of change that narrative and post a few really good performances against a couple of top teams that they might run into. Uh, And then they may end up getting a, a postseason tournament bid, not necessarily NCAA tournament. I don't think that they can ever get an at-large there, but uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they're playing, you know, NIT basketball or something else. If it's a tournament that's going on here, we may have the chance to see him actually go against real athletes and try to answer the question is part of the reason why he wasn't playing at Illinois, even though he's this skilled because he just can't quite do it against that caliber of defender or has he gained a lot? Is he, able to hold up a little bit more and we should be taking him seriously as a potential 2023 guy. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's at least intriguing. Uh, let's go to Judah Mintz now playing in yeah. the ACC where Syracuse, by the way, I guess like in theory is not dead to make the NCAA tournament, right? Like they are 16 and 13. They're nine and nine in this league. They have games against Georgia tech and wake forest coming up at home. They will be favored in both of those games, at the very least, let's say. But they're 111th in Ken Palm. They have losses against Colgate and Bryant. Uh, I I would be surprised if they make the NCAA tournament. I think that their best win this year is like NC State at home or something. They're not really like on the bubble. But I guess if they went deep in the ACC tournament, it's not not like dead, maybe. where are you at on Judah Mintz? Because I actually quite like Judah Mintz. I love Judah Mintz. Uh, I, I this, think by the way, this was a spin special in the preseason. You were was, high on Judah Mintz. This was. Uh, there's something just about the way that he moves that entrances me because he's he's shifty in ways that make him difficult to guard, but also difficult to predict. Super tight handle, really crafty. As soon as he gets beneath the three-point line, he's a threat to score from anywhere. Really good pull-up game, awesome floater, great at playing off two feet off one foot, these weird takeoff finishes, and he's a sensational passer. He'll zip out some awesome ones out of ball screens. He's great as soon as he gets downhill of involving guys in the dunker spot or rollers going towards the basket, and he's got a flair for just making some really, really fun passes behind his head, behind the back, splitting two guys in a double team. Really, really smart passer in that regard. Uh, Over his last nine games... Judah Mintz is shooting 52.5% from three, 
on decent volume. And this has got me a little bit more optimistic that he's not a multi-year project who needs to go back to college and work on his jump shot and maybe some in-season performances that he's been able to put up late could propel him towards being a one-and-done type of candidate. I love his game. I, I think that there's a real cerebral player in there who can overcome being not the greatest athlete in the world and, and certainly a, a right now fair to say inconsistent shooter, uh, but I am mesmerized by the tools, and, and this is a guy that I'm just really, really high on. Yeah, he's gotten better throughout the season. I think that's the critical thing, not just the shooting, but the decision-making, the playmaking. It just feels a little bit more like there's a plan when he attacks, right? It feels like there's just more of a real, he's always aggressive, but there's like a method to the madness in terms of his aggression now. And this is a guy who is aggressive defensively, which is a really you know good thing to see. He is someone that will get into the paint regularly and will be fearless attacking. You know, he averages six free throws a game. He's going to try and find bodies. He's going to try and get to the line. He's just very small. Like he's six foot, 370 pounds. And that's just, it's hard. He's going to have to fill out. That's the thing. That's why I do. I think he is like a multi-year project at the end of the day, but yeah, I will have him in the top 40. That's for sure. Like I will have him like top 40, top 45. I wouldn't be stunned if he goes pro just based off of, you know, it's Syracuse. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, w- would you want to go play for Jim Beheim again? Well, uh, instead of answering a question that I think everybody knows the answer to, uh, let me ask you this. Do you think that if you're a smaller guard, do you think that there's advantage to playing in a man-to-man system somewhere where you have to be tested and you can show what you can do as a disruptor over the top of ball screens at the point of attack instead of sitting back in a two, three zone again next year. Sure. But if I can get assurances, I'm going to get a guaranteed deal. I'd just rather do that in the G league. I think. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, his game, I think would really translate well to the G league. The G league is a guard oriented league. It is a league where his aggressiveness will be rewarded against those bigs that just straight up. A lot of those bigs in the G league struggle to defend at a really high level uh, in space where obviously it's an NBA spaced court as opposed to a college spaced court puts bigs in the G league at a disadvantage because the reason that a lot of those bigs are in the G league is because of defensive deficiencies or size-based deficiencies in some way. So I do think that it would help him for sure to just go to the G league next year. Yeah. I I love Judah. There's just something so, you know, you'd said he seems more measured down the stretch run of the season. And I think that that's, yeah. that's fair. But what I love about Judah is how improvisational he can be when he's got the, the basketball in his hands and he's inside of 20 feet. He's a threat to do a lot of different things with the ball. And he <laughs> seems to make the right play happen more times than not. I, I love watching yeah. it. Yeah. 18 points in his last nine games, as you said, he's really improving. He's really, really improving. I think. Uh Okay. Last guy here is Amani Bates. Yeah, Amani. Where, where do you want to start with Amani Bates? You, you put Amani on this list, so I'm going to make you start. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, he's averaging 20 points a game this year, and he can break the internet with some games where he goes absolutely nuclear and hits the highest degree of difficulty shots possible. He's a six foot eight teenager who 
has really insanely deep shooting range. But he's shooting 41% from the field, 33% from three, doesn't really consistently make plays for others, struggles at the point of attack defensively. I struggles with engagement defensively, by the he, way, too. He struggles with a lot of things. Um, I'm having a hard time justifying a top 40 pick for a guy like Imani, even though I see oh, the yeah, tools no. as a shot maker. Like, I have a really difficult time justifying it because of how much improvement would need to happen both from a skill perspective to be more well-rounded on the offensive end, from a defensive perspective so that he's anywhere close to playable, and then from a strength and kind of physiological perspective to alleviate some of the challenges he has of separating one-on-one. Like he is purely reliant on making those tough shots over the top of people. And he can yeah. he can do it. He's proven that he can do it, but it's not efficient enough to be counted on at the highest levels, and I don't think he adds much else right now. I'm, I just... I'm I'm low on Imani. H- has he proven he can do it at that level? Even over his last 13 games, he's shooting 38 and a half percent from the field, 31 percent from three. I-, I I don't know that he's proven he can do it. He has a negative assist turnover ratio. I mean, he he's been he started the season better than what he's finishing. Yeah, it, well, he, he's honesty. he's he's proven he can go nuclear. He's proven that he has yeah. this shot making ability where once he's on, like he is on and tough to stop but even that's not helping his team win games. And and I think that a lot of times that's a cop-out that a lot of scouts use sometimes in trying to say like why they don't love a guy. It's because they don't see his skills helping their team win games. But at the end of the day, I think he actively hurts them by the way that he hunts shots. Like it's, it's pretty egregious. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no glue to his game. It's all shot making right now right uh like i said negative assist to turnover ratio over those last 13 games in conference play uh seriously negative assist turnover ratio over the entirety of the season almost one to two uh it's bad in terms of the way that he impacts the game He, he has a negative impact in my opinion on eastern michigan a lot of the time they need him to like go score because Eastern Michigan needs someone who can go score, but it's everything else that is a real problem for him. Uh, Yeah. I mean, put it this way. If I pitched to you that a guy in the Mac is currently averaging a freshman, even so we can compare him to Ryan Rollins last year, if we want to even because similar age, similar trajectory as a second year player in college. Right. Uh, Ryan was a guy that was underage as well. So if I pitch to you 19 and a half points in the Mac on 38% from uh, the field and 29% from three in conference play with a near one to two assist to turnover ratio, I mean, that, that wouldn't strike you as a top 45 pick. So no. for comparison's sake, Ryan Rollins last year, again, a 19-year-old playing in that league, 19 points, two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio, 49% from the field, so a 10-point difference, 33% from three, 80.6% from the line. Ryan Rollins went, uh, I believe, 44th last year, if memory serves. I, I don't think there's a case for him on Bates as a first-round pick. Uh, I don't think there's a case for him as a top 40 pick. Uh, It's whether or not a team wants to like take a flyer and draft him uh, just as like a big shot maker. Yep. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is uh, because that's who he is. I don't think he's shown that there's enough versatility or any versatility to his game. And one part of this that doesn't get mentioned enough, like, I don't think he's a great athlete. He's got oh, so no, many. He's, he's he's yeah. got so many things that he's got to change up in terms of how he moves. Can't separate from guys one on one. He's very thin still. Like this is a major major project. And and yeah, the the highlights show a lot of the tantalizing upside there. But there's so many things that need to happen in order for for him to be able to do that on an NBA floor. Totally agree. I don't really see it. I, I just don't. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Right now, at least, maybe he'll make some improvements. And what would you suggest he does next year? I guess oh. is my question to you. I think he's got to just declare and get it over with. Like he can't go to a, a third team in three years in college. I don't think. I would struggle to see him running it back well, in Eastern Michigan. And having, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if he's going to have a different result though. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I hope know. there would be. You know, be, he's still freshman age. Like he's still he very, is. very young. And I, I think there is a case for him to go back. I do. I, I just don't. He's not a surefire draft pick if he leaves right now. Sure. So why not just go back? You're, you're not a surefire draft pick now. You're not a surefire draft pick if you go back. See if you can get some NIL money and just go ahead with it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I just if he was like so, like the way that we talk about these guys that are okay, we have to strike while the iron's hot, quote unquote, or strike while the scouts are still interested in us, right? It's okay with Gigi Jackson, right? He's had a bad year, but the floor is still 40th overall, right? If everything breaks wrong for him in the pre draft process, the floor is still he gets a guaranteed deal next year, right? Like Greg Brown got a guaranteed deal. Yeah. Um, eventually. Uh yeah. like you you can you can go down the line. With Imani, it's not that. Like the no. floor is undrafted. You're in the G League making thirty five thousand dollars a year next year. Or forty thousand. I'm sorry, it's forty thousand now. That's not that's a real floor. Yeah. Um yeah. now you're it's, right. It's not yeah. So I, I think there's a real case for him to go back. Get what you can NIL wise, threaten to transfer, do all that stuff, um, and, and go back and try and round out your game. Yeah, like it's not—it's not like he's striking while the iron is hot. I guess is my point. No, no, it's certainly not. Uh, it's not very hot right now, and I think it might have been in November, December, as he got out to a yep. really hot start from the season, and everyone's oh look, Amani Bates is back. This is the type of player we'd always hoped we'd see, but it's just it's kind of stalled out here as the season's gone on. Yeah, it has. Okay. Uh, spins. Do you have, uh, do you have anything that you want to note that you've watched anything exciting? Cause your season ended and you've had a little bit more free time. Had a little bit more free time and I have parked my ass on the couch and watched basketball nonstop ever since I got that free time. Uh, I want to, I want to give a quick shout out to Jalen hood, Shafino at Indiana who just went on the road yeah. and had, a hell of a performance at Purdue, 35 points, controlled the entire tempo of that game, looked unflappable while doing so, got to his spots, expert in the pick and roll, attacked Zach Eady and drop coverage. Uh, Indiana was really, really good defensively throughout. They clogged the lane in the second floor and made Eady's life really difficult in a way that nobody really had 
so far this year. It wasn't Trace Jackson Davis's best game of the season, but really good Trey Galloway game. Miller Cop made a couple big shots. Like Indiana's really good and really fun, but my heart goes out to Jalen Hutchifino. I love that guy. He is he's unequivocally one of my favorite prospects in this class. Yeah, I mean, just a stud mid-range shooter, stud pull-up shooter, has a real chance to be like at the very least a two-level scorer from three and from the mid-range. The finishing stuff isn't all that great, but in general, I'm a big fan. Guys that defend, guys that can really pass, play make, play unselfish basketball, but then can go for 35 when they see the marginal advantage like he did. Yeah, Yeah, I'm a a big fan. I I have him in the top 20-ish, something like that, somewhere in the top 20 at the very least. So uh, I'm a fan. I had him at 14 on the mock. I have to do a top 100 for this week. So we'll see where he falls whenever I finally put that together. That is the key folks. You are going to get a top 100 for me uh, at some point this week. Trying to think what, what else, what else have I done recently? I have, Oh, I finished reading uh, where men win glory, which is the Pat Tillman book that John Krakauer wrote. What was that? Maybe 15 years ago, 12 years ago, finally got around to it (laughs) on my end. But I wanted to read more about Pat Tillman in general because I found it really interesting that the NFL continues to use his foundation and use his name, you know, strongly associated with the military when everything in that book seems very uh, clear that he had some real qualms at the very least with the military, maybe not like outright, you know, problems with it, but real qualms about where things things were headed, especially within the war that he was participating in. Uh, really, really interesting just from the perspective of like military leadership and everything the military seemed to do in order to originally hide the fact that he was killed by friendly fire from the family. Uh, just a, it's a fascinating book. I would recommend it to anybody. Uh, now I'm onto, onto a new book and I'm excited. But what else have I most I watched? I watched uh, I saw The Devil, which is a 2010 Korean revenge movie that I didn't really like last night. Um, considered like one of the like best revenge movies of the last 15 years or so. I just didn't really fuck with it. I actually liked uh, I watched Shotgun Wedding, the Jennifer Lopez uh, movie that's on Amazon Prime now. Yeah, yeah. I had a great time with that. What a what a stupid movie. What a what a fun dumb movie. That's that's where I'm at. Shotgun Wedding. Go check it out. If you if you want to laugh, go go check it out because it was just so dumb and so silly yeah. and so ridiculous. Uh, okay, Spins. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got coming up because. You have some free time coming on your hands here. I do, and it is glorious. Sam, thanks so much for having me tonight. Uh, find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore my Substack page, theboxand1.substack.com, or YouTube. Just my name, Adam Spinella. Again, this is uh, an exciting time of the year for me. Conference tournaments coming up. We're almost into March with March Madness underway. And then we get really rolling out the red carpet for all of the, the deep dive NBA draft stuff. So we're right there, folks. Uh, I thought this was a, a great kind of last chance preview for a few prospects to go over tonight. And hey, the NBA season's really fun too. So great basketball had all around. I will have a top 100 ranking on Wednesday. I will have another podcast. Not going to say with who yet, because we're still working out timing, but um no one, someone's been on the show before. Someone's been on the show many times before, but we're still working out timing. Um, you know, the Thursday, Friday pod will likely be with Schindler. 
And I will have a top 100 ranking up on The Athletic at some point this week whenever I find my way through that. So keep it locked here until then. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye. Thank you.